Welcome everybody out to Utah in the Weeds. My name is Tim Pickett and this is episode 89. And today we're coming to you from, well, honestly, it's just me today. And you know why? Because there's so much going on at the legislation level, like so much going on in the space right now, that I felt like it would be a good idea just to throw in 20, 30 minutes of of kind of some updates on the program, what's happening, maybe some of the ins and outs, uh, nuances. Uh, I don't know everything that's going on right now in Utah, but I think it's worth talking about it and going through some of the bills, uh, specifically Senator Vickers' bill, as well as Senator Escamilla, uh, her bill uh, on the floor. So um, before I get into that, I wanted to update you on a couple of things that were happening with Utah Therapeutic Health Center, utahmarijuana.org. And one of them is a new uh, a new kind of educational partnership with a program called Gray Matters. And this is a program that launched uh, recently, and I gave a speech at the Capitol, Utah Capitol, about it, uh, about talking to children about marijuana use and cannabis use. And they're building educational resources and are going to be really working on helping parents, teachers, coaches, and kids have conversations with children about cannabis use and about the dangers specifically of cannabis use as a youngster. I don't want to, you know, I'm an advocate of medical cannabis. I'm an advocate of legal access to cannabis, to THC products. But as you know, from listening to this podcast, I hope, and I hope I get this across, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of adult use programs, frankly. And I know that might be a little, you know, a little controversial and and some people are going to say, you know, Tim, well, you're just not a you're you're not a uh, a a person who supports adult use because you make money as a gatekeeper for cannabis here in Utah, and that's just not true. I just think we are not ready yet for adult use. I think that it requires. Um, I think there are a lot of people who can use cannabis uh, in an adult way, maybe a recreational way and a medicinal way without any further education. They know what they're doing and they may not require a QMP or a a medical provider's recommendation. Frankly, I don't, I'm not opposed to that. Uh, You know, maybe there's 10, 20% of the population in that category. Maybe there's a middle ground where there's people who might benefit from talking to a medical provider about cannabis use. And, and then there's, there's a third 40% of people maybe who really need, they need help learning how to use cannabis because it's not an easy medicine to use. It's not like I can prescribe, you know, 10 milligrams of THC three times a day. And, and I know exactly how that's going to affect you and what that's going to do with you. If I gave that a prescription, so to speak, or a recommendation to a patient. You know, one patient might go out and not have any effect uh, on their condition with 10 milligrams three times a day. And another patient may be completely disoriented, nauseated, paranoid, and just debilitated by that dose. Um, and so 
it requires it requires not only the person and the patient using the cannabis to keep a journal and be thoughtful and intentional about that product, but it also, I think, requires a medical provider to help guide that process. Plus, you have all of these issues with medication interactions, potentially, that are, we're getting new research about and are coming out, and, uh, and help kind of what we call tip the scales in favor of the patient by guiding those choices of products and delivery methods and dosing that will help patients get through uh, without, without, without too much trouble. So uh, back to gray matters, I think that program is great. I think that uh, you know kids should be educated. And like we talked about up, up at the Capitol, the Utah Capitol, kids will make good decisions if you give them the right information and you treat them with respect. And additionally, listen, listen to the kids, right? Listen to why they, why, why do you want to know about cannabis? Why do you want to use it? What, what's happening with you? So that's a great program. There'll be more about that. And of course we'll have them on the, the podcast and talk all about that, but it's a good program. Uh, Uplift, donate at uh, utahmarijuana.org slash uplift. Donate. Please donate. We're, we're seeing patients. We have 72 uh, visits scheduled already this year for low-income and terminally ill patients here in Utah. Additionally, utahmarijuana.org, uh, uh, our YouTube channel, Discover Marijuana, is releasing episodes videos every week. And I'm really excited about this next, uh, you know, this kind of series is it's about me and it's about Blake Smith. Uh, get to know me, get to know why I got into this industry and this specialty in medicine and a little bit more about me on Discover Marijuana and Blake Smith, get to know him a little bit better. Uh, just, uh, it was kind of fun. It was a little bit nervous, frankly, talking about myself and exposing that. Even me, who is in this industry and literally talks about cannabis and teaches people how to do this for a living, uh, it's still, it's still, I have that background of growing up in Utah and, and all of the nuances of our culture and conservative, and I have kids and, you know, how much do you want to show the world and your kids and how much it's, uh, you know what? Maybe it's easy for you, but it's just still still not easy for me. You know, I'm not I'm not the guy who goes out and you know uses the Da Vinci right out on the back porch in front of my kids. I'm just I'm not there yet. Um, so let's get into talking about these bills and what's happening in the Utah program. Uh, we will be having Rich Oborn on from the Department of Health once the legislative session is over and once these bills are complete. Uh, but right now, I want to bring these up for a couple of reasons. I think it's important uh, because this is such a fast-moving industry and fast-moving program. I want to bring it up because I think it's important for us as a community of cannabis users and consumers and patients to be involved and hear what is happening and what is being decided by the legislature who aren't maybe cannabis users or patients and who don't have the knowledge um, 
of the QMP community, the medical community. They're, they're getting information from all these sources, but they are really making the decisions. So let's get into this. I'd like to start with Senator Vickers' bill. It is Senate Bill 190. <clears throat> now, so here's my understanding. I'm not an, I'm not an expert at the legislature. What I do know is Senator Vickers will, will write the bill, and then it will go through committee. It will pass out of committee, and then it will, once it passes, that's passes out of committee, and then it goes, I, I think, to the floor, the Senate floor. Once it passes the floor of the Senate, then it goes over to the House of Representatives. And so each of these bills has both a Senate sponsor, Senator Vickers in this case, and a uh, representative sponsor, uh, what's called a, a floor um, House sponsor. And in this case, I believe it will be uh, Representative Ray Ward. Currently online, there's no uh, listed House sponsor. Uh, but but the House tends to like Representative Ward to do these. He's a medical provider. He's a family practice physician here in Bountiful, Utah. Um, he's actually my representative. <clears throat> um, but it hasn't hasn't got a House sponsor yet. So Senate Bill 190, it's online at le.utah.gov. You go search for it, uh, and you can find this, the, uh, the bill there. He introduced it first, and then there is what's called the substitution now bill for that. So it, it's, uh, it's when they do an update. And let's just go through a few of these updates that I think are interesting. Um, you know, we're going to Senator Vickers' bill focuses on the hemp industry specifically and restricting uh, products that are psychotropic and psychoactive uh, outside of the medical market. It was one of the big goals of the of uh, you know some of the constituents and some of the groups. I I think that uh, I can't speak for them, but if, but certainly the growers and the medical side of things, the processors and the retail operators uh, were were definitely pushing for more restriction on the over the counter market and some patient advocacy groups as well. Utah Patients Coalition specifically, I believe, was, uh, and we'll talk to Desiree Hennessy about this as well. We're trying to get this restricted because, and we've talked about this before on the podcast and on my YouTube channel, Delta-8 THC. So you, so you have multiple deltas of THC. Delta-9 THC is the one where that we are commonly, you know, we associate with uh, getting high, right? Delta-8 is produced in the plant, but at a very low amount. Uh, there's Delta-10, Delta-11. Uh, but Delta-8 is something that is usually created by converting CBD into Delta-8. And Delta-8 is psychoactive. It is less head high, tends to produce a body high, uh, more than a head high, tends to absorb better in the gut and the periphery, right? So CB1 receptors are in the, the nervous system and the, uh, the brain and the, uh, the spinal cord, and that's what really gets you high. And then there's these receptors all over the body. There's a lot of these receptors in the gut, CB2 receptors, and they're going to they're gonna interact with Delta-8 more. So a lot of people with abdominal pain find Delta-8 to be a little bit better. But 
there is there, over the counter, you can buy a lot of Delta 8 products over the counter at vape shops specifically. And there's been a lot of kids, uh, there's some news articles in the fall about somebody using some Delta 8 products and having really, really bad reactions. I think the the big concern for me and for the medical cannabis advisory group that I am involved with, uh, which is some pharmacists and providers, is that there's there's up to 5% of unknown chemical byproducts in these products. So that propose that poses a risk to patients when you don't know what up to 5% of these products are. And the way you get CBD to convert to Delta-8 can be done very pretty cleanly, uh, but also can be done with some garage organic chemistry. And that leaves patients... Uh, really in a, in a bad position, uh, taking products that potentially could harm them with these unknown chemical byproducts. So Senator Vickers bill uh, deals with this pretty specifically. It also um, talks about, you know, distributing and selling industrial hemp products, uh, stuff like that. It mostly deals with things that potentially the Department of Agriculture would uh, would deal with. So let's look at this. So the big issue is that we're going to we're going to change the 0.3% THC, right, to a to a combination. So we're going to combine the 0.3% by dry weight, okay? And then we're going to add it contains a combined amount of total THC and any THC analog that does not exceed 10% of the total cannabinoid content. So what that means is the specific piece of that is THC analog. So D delta 8, delta 9, delta 10, all of these uh, psychoactive THC analogs are removed. Okay, they're, they're basically going to say you, you've got a, a total THC content of 10% or less, and you also have to live by this 0.3% by dry weight. So let me put that in perspective. If you were buying a product, if you bought a one liter drink, a one liter drink, and you wanted to put as much THC in it as you could legally and sell it over the counter, you could get up to three milligrams of Delta-9 THC in a one liter drink. Um, so that is what would, that's a reduction from the condition now, which is only dry weight, 0.3% on a dry weight basis. Now you're going to have 10%, uh, less than 10% total cannabinoids plus the dry weight issue, okay? Now, in that liter product, you would have to have, you know, 10, you would have to have 10 times the THC of something else. That's pretty easy. You put 30, you know, put 30 milligrams of, of CBD in there or CBG, whatever, and you could do that. And then you could drink a three milligram Delta, Delta 9 drink and buy it at the vape shop. So certainly those products will be developed uh, if this bill passes out of committee. One of the issues we discussed in our cannabis advisory group is some states have gone to a milligram, uh, a milligram type recommendation to keep it at less than two milligrams per serving so that they don't get this. Because, I mean, frankly, if you put five gallons of, you know, product, if you sold a five gallon bucket, uh, you know, you could put a lot of THC in there. No, I don't think a kid's going to drink five gallons of whatever it is, but uh, you get, I think you get my point. So there, are, 
the the two things are important in this bill right here are THC analogs. So they're basically cutting out the definition, defining the definition of THC to include all of the deltas, all of the deltas. Um, and then the second thing is reducing this. Talking to a industry a person who develops some of these products today, um, this will eliminate, uh, he, he believes that this will eliminate national brands, multi-state brands from selling those products, those those types of hemp-based products in Utah, and you'll be limited to um, Utah-based uh, manufacturers, you know, to get these types of products. The second issue in the um, in the bill is the the drinks. The drinks uh, currently, the law says that you can sell a liquid suspension. Uh, that has been somewhat controversial because there has been tinctures. A tincture is essentially an oil that you put THC in and then you you unscrew it and there's a little dropper and you can measure out your dose. And as a patient, it's a very good way to dose out THC. And there has been some companies to, to uh, produce drinks in cans and drinks. And their argument was, hey, it's a liquid suspension, right? The tincture is a liquid suspension. NyQuil, right? nobody would argue that NyQuil isn't a liquid suspension. It's just in a bigger bottle. And so why couldn't you do a drink? Uh, of course, Select uh, from Cureleaf has a drink additive, they, which is a liquid suspension. That you put a teeny tiny, uh, you know, liquid and you just add it to a drink, add it to any drink that you have. And that, of course, uh, I don't think would get affected by this bill, but this bill limits a liquid suspension to 30 milliliters, which is the same amount as a tincture. It's essentially restricting uh, no drinks, absolutely no drinks would be sold in Utah if that line passes. The THC analog, uh, it also defines uh, THC analogs, which means a substance that is structurally or pharmacologically substantially similar to or is represented as being similar to delta 9 THC. So that again, delta 8, 9, 10, 11, all those. Uh, it also defines what is not a uh, THC analog and includes a few of the cannabinoids that we can buy over the counter, CBC, CBL, CBD, CBDV, CBE, CBG, CBGV, CBN, CBV. I'm not going to go on and on. That's literally all the ones that are listed in the bill. Uh, total THC, again, the sum as calculated as all of that uh, jargon. Next, I think this one is kind of funny. It uh, uh, it makes all retailers of these products list them as a hemp product and not as a cannabis or medical cannabis product. And I I think that's kind of funny. I you know it's come on, right? Like that just seems to me to be the medical market's way of saying ah this isn't uh, you know this isn't cannabis. That's partly why I use the word marijuana, frankly, because nobody questions what I'm talking about. And cannabis is a little confusing because, you know, you don't know hemp versus uh, 
hemp versus cannabis now is a, is a discussion point, apparently. So a couple of other issues in Senate Bill 190, adding, uh, allowing for a research university. Uh, I think I think the only research university in Utah is the University of Utah to do more research and to operate as a lab. Uh, this will help do some studies. Um, and and I think this is this is pretty cool to allow the University of Utah to be involved in the testing because if we can because it also includes a hospital. Um, so, you know, potentially this potentially opens up the door to a little bit of clinical research. Uh, they, there's a few programs around the country that do clinical research, not many. Um, and hopefully the university of Utah will get into that. And then there's some language about, you know, if the, there's been some movement in the ownership of the, of, uh, the growing licenses, for example, Curaleaf purchased trike. So now Curaleaf is a vertically integrated organization here in Utah. They grow, they process, and they have their pharmacy in Lehigh. And, uh, and, and I believe also Zion Medicinal has purchased Bloom Medicinal in Cedar City. And so now they are vertically integrated. So there's some interesting language about notification to the state if ownership of these things change. Um, there's some uh, safety clarifications in labeling uh, here in this, uh, the bill, always trying to tweak things. Um, Rich Elborn said it to me best the other day, compromise kind of breeds complexity. And so, you know, all of these compromises, they either made it more complex and they're simplifying it, or we are now making it more complex. Um, changes a little bit of rules for the Department of Agriculture, who can make rules, and in identifying each derivative or synthetic cannabinoid is a derivative or a synthetic cannabinoid. So a little bit of labeling issue between derived cannabinoids and synthetic cannabinoids. There was some controversy on, and there's some opinion uh, within the pharmacy community about labeling synthetic cannabinoids. Delta-8 can be considered a synthetic cannabinoid or a derived cannabinoid. And some people consider Delta-8 a derived cannabinoid. So a little bit of clarification there. I, I don't know what's best. I think uh, it's hard because you really have to educate the public and educate the patient um, to be what they're taking. I'm a big, big fan of uh, as much transparency as possible and as much testing, frankly, as possible. So the gelatinous cubes, there was the issue with gelatinous cubes being coated with sugar, uh, being too much, um, too enticing to children. And they, uh, they changed that. They allowed sugar coating on those. And really, re reason is, is because it allows those things not to stick together. So it really didn't change the rules other than it made it easier for producers to, I, th I think there was some discussion that they were going to have to wrap each gummy individually. And I've had, I've, you know, consumed gummies where they're coated in sugar and it is a little bit better. One of the big problems that you have in cannabis uh, gummies and, gel oh, well, gelatinous cubes, they're still keeping that language, don't worry. Um, is that they they melt together at any heat um, uh, 
you know, the melting point is really low for these and they stick together. So adding sugar uh, coating, you know, not making it, uh, you know, an edible or enticing to children. But I think that was a good little tweak. And then if I read this right, I believe that the the uh, the legislation is kind of putting a deadline on this provisional card. So there was an uh, there was a discussion and a passage of uh, this provisional card. So currently, when you get a medical patient card, it takes the state, the Department of Health, a few days, up to 15 days by statute, to issue that card. And I think this puts a deadline as of September 2022. You better be better have that provisional card ready to go. Uh, so that would make it such that a patient applying for a medical card would get it immediately based on the provider's recommendation. And that provisional card would be good for 60 days, and then the card would convert to a normal card. So no additional meetings, just better for the patient because they get their card immediately. That that way, if you come see me in Bountiful, say, in the same building as the Wholesome Co. dispensary, that uh, the, the old car building there by Costco, you could... You could literally walk out of my office and walk into the pharmacy and buy product. That's important. There's a lot of patients who drive a long way, frankly, uh, to see to do that face-to-face visit. And it should just, I mean, we live in the digital age. Come on, that should have been done, you know, years ago on day one. But the EVS system, I don't know, you know who we should get on? Uh, to the podcast is the EVS producer, like the developer, right? We need that person. Get them on. We need to chew their butt for for uh, building such a crazy program. Speaking of crazy programs, so a registered pharmacy agent, right? If you're in the pharmacy working, you do not have access, legal access to the EVS system. How crazy is that? And I don't think a lot of people understand that. No, really, the person selling you the uh, the medical cannabis behind the counter, they cannot access the EVS system and see your purchasing limits. The pharmacist is the only person. So Vickers Bill adjusts that, gives the pharmacy agents uh, a requirements for some privacy, essentially HIPAA training, medical HIPAA training, which I, I don't think a lot of them would have, right? I don't think a lot of them come from the medical industry. So it gives them some training on privacy because that is paramount paramount, and then uh, then allows them to have what's called proxy access to the EVS system. And we have that in the medical side. We have our medical assistants are able to log in and change things in the EVS system on our orders. Uh, that's pretty standard in medicine, right? Like I can say to my MA, hey, will you call in this prescription for this patient? And that can be done on my orders. So that that's a that's a nice little update there. I think that's pretty much it, you know, as far as the big things. I think it's um it's kind of interesting to go through this this bill and kind of see what tweaks they have and and things like that. So, let's move on to Senate Bill 195, Senator Escamilla's bill. Mia is a Democrat, and she also has a bill that is uh, doesn't have a House sponsor yet, but again, similar to the other one, we anticipate that Dr. Ward, Representative Ward, would be the House sponsor. Her bill passed out of committee as well and has been uh, has a substitute amended bill here. And it covers different things, more things that are related to the Department of Health, advertising specifically, and uh, QMP renewal process. 
Um, but the advertising thing was kind of a, a controversial, that was kind of the controversial uh, piece of her bill. So let's talk about that a little bit. There was this weird thing in the the original bill that did not allow a QMP to even like say you're a QMP, right? Which just isn't really practical. So they've they've made it a little easier for a QMP to say, hey, I you know I recommend medical cannabis. You cannot though. Uh, you you can't advertise for a uh, a specific condition that you're treating, like that you're going to help a specific condition. You can't make a claim. So this clarifies that you cannot make a claim. It also uh, uh, reduces, uh, it eliminates the ability to use terms that are related to recreational marijuana. Okay. So I'm going to go through these terms for a minute. And I, I, look, we, here we are. We, we live in Utah. You can't use the word weed, pot, reefer, grass, hash, ganja, Mary Jane, high, buzz, haze, stoned, joint, bud, smoke, euphoria, dank, doobie, cush, frost, cookies, wreck, bake, blunt, combust, bong, bud tender, dab, blaze, toke, or 420. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. We're were you really getting into the weeds there, right? We really are. Uh like legislating getting legislating words we can use. I don't know. That is a little crazy. So uh the controversial thing with the advertising was the uh the discounts. So they were gonna restrict the discounts. Uh, that you could use, you couldn't. You couldn't provide a discount. You couldn't provide a coupon. Couldn't provide anything like that. So, and then you couldn't reach out and tell uh, patients about a coupon or a discount or a promotion. So that's something that these uh, pharmacies. It's the it's the weird part about medical cannabis programs because it's kind of a in between a true medical pharmacy and a retail uh, adult use or recreational pharmacy or dispensary because. You know, it's not like you get a text message from your normal, from your regular pharmacy, like, hey, metoprolol is 25% off. Come stock up on, you know, metoprolol or, hey, Zofran, today is, you know, today only. We're going to have a an event. Uh, now you can't use 420, but we're going to have an event. And so Zofran is going to be, you know, two bucks. Um, but in cannabis, you, you we do that. So they wanted to really restrict that. Uh, one of the problems with that was there is subsidy programs, for example, like my Uf Uplift program, and that uh, you know that offers a twenty five percent discount to terminally ill patients. Uh, yeah, uh, hello, we need that. We need that to stay, and we so we were able to fix that piece, but it's going to restrict some advertising. And I think the billboards that you see of Wholesome are going to be coming down for that, um, based on this rule. But if you want those promotions, I think what's going to be key, and we'll follow up with you on this, what's going to be key is if you want access to those promotions, you're going to have to opt in. So you're going to have to join the email list at Block, Cureleaf, Deseret Wellness, Wholesome, uh, Bloom. And once you opt in, then you'll be able to get those, those coupons and those discounts. Uh, and those, what what they're going to call, they're going to call them subsidies. Um, so updating the advertising uh, standards. Now, one other issue, um, and Senator Escamilla has done a really good job here with the hospice uh, board. So they're they're saying she's going to 
she wants every hospice program to have at least one QMP available. And this has been something that we've noticed. We do Utah uh, Utah Therapeutic Health Center. We do home visits uh, for people who can't get to the the clinic, and it's we've we've actually been working with some hospice companies, and we treat palliative uh, care and hospice patients uh, specifically for cannabis. So I, I think this is a step in the right direction. Every hospice, uh, whether or not they recommend cannabis at all. Uh, they just want to require that somebody uh, is able to recommend cannabis. The other uh, interesting um, thing about uh, Senator Escamilla's bill is it will allow an acute pain diagnosis. So it's actually going to add a 16th qualifying condition. And that is uh, a way for, say, a surgeon who is going to replace your knee to give you a 30-day medical cannabis card for that acute pain episode. And then, of course, you could convert that to a long-term card if you qualify and the, the QMP uh, allows that. That, I think, is interesting. And to be honest, I think that's a little complicated. Uh, I, don't, I didn't personally think it was necessary. I think that... Um, you know, if you have pain in your knee and it, you're going to get it replaced, uh, you qualify for a card anyway. So why why muddy the waters with this weird 30 day card? But the point I think being we're you know trying every every single little way to expand the program that we can in the political climate uh, that we live in here in Utah. So uh, interesting acute pain kind of qualifying condition there. The language of that bill is going to include pain that is expected to last for two weeks or longer for an acute condition, including a surgical procedure for which a medical professional may generally prescribe opioids for a limited duration subject to, you know, section blah, blah, blah. So from a research standpoint, this is not really based on on research, in my opinion, for acute pain versus chronic pain. Um, again, I think that if you uh, if you need that surgical procedure or something, uh, and you're you know you probably qualify for a card anyway. I get that people really. Um, what I do support in this, what I absolutely do support is. People who don't want to use opioids, and there are a growing, there are a huge growing number of people who just don't want to use synthetic pharmaceuticals, and they want to use something natural. And in that case, this is really spot on, right? Because what other, I mean, what are your other options other than Tylenol and ibuprofen? So this, you know what? I agree. This is a this is a definite step in the right direction. Um, adding QMPs to these to these boards, um, I think, again, really good step in the right direction. Uh, whether or not those providers recommend cannabis doesn't really matter, frankly. It's uh, you're 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 making them get the education that I think uh, will, in the future, lead to more cannabis recommendation and the public destigmatizing cannabis as a medicine. Uh, one of the last things she does is change the Cannabinoid Product Review Board, the name to the Cannabis Research Review Board. Um, interesting why why we think we need to, to do that, but you know, maybe, maybe that's a really, maybe that'll end up being the thing that makes the difference. Um, and it also talks about the research review board, um, uh, kind of, you know, how they're, how they're chosen. Now, one thing I would love to see, 
on the cannab- cannabis review board and the compassionate review board, frankly, is uh, including more medical providers as a physician assistant, as a PA, and knowing and employing and working with nurse practitioners, you know, leaving us out. We really do run the program. Uh, frankly, there are more PAs and NPs by far than MDs that are in this program as qualified medical providers. Um, it, you know, nobody got more education than anybody else, medical school, PA school, nurse practitioner school about cannabis and excluding us, eh, you know, eh, I, I, I don't agree with it, but I, I've never been a member of the club anyway. So um, I guess this doesn't change that. Helps students and schools uh, when they have a student that is using medical cannabis. For example, let's say an eight-year-old with severe uh, autism, and they found that a tincture of cannabis is really, really helping. This helps the school, and it helps uh, legislate protections for that student. So that student doesn't have to be taken off of school grounds to get their medicine. They can have that medicine right there at their at their school. And I believe there's also some protections there, um, you know, for the nursing staff who is administering this because frankly, it's a federally one, you know, federally uh, schedule one illegal drug still, right? So, um, so that brings up some anxiety for school districts. I was involved in a, a program about that. And boy, there's a lot of anxiety around that. Schools, nurses, kids. I mean, you've got to really, uh, it's a, that would be rough, right? Um, So a couple of other uh, higher education medical training uh, also requires some QMPs to be involved in medical training. Um, Again, just kind of forcing education and I, I like this idea. I don't think you need, as a provider, you certainly can decide whether or not you want to recommend medical cannabis to patients, but you should be required to know about it, uh, to know about the Utah program, especially if you're educating other medical providers uh, like that hospice thing. And then the last thing uh, that is was kind of discussed in the interim, I had a meeting with uh, Senator Vickers in the fall about renewing may- patient medical cards, and we'll see. Uh, I'll have an update about that. That's what we are proposing and what I think is necessary in the program myself is to allow for medical providers to cover for each other. For example, if I have a partner or QMP who goes out on uh, maternity leave for a few months, you know, what happens to those patients right now? If my panel is full, those patients have to go shop for another QMP and that's just inappropriate for medical care. Those patients should be able to be seen by me and recertified under that that uh, my partner as a provider, and then she comes back and she can resume care of those patients. That's just a continuity of care issue. There are other drugs that are like this in the in the world. Accutane is one of them where providers kind of share responsibility and are limited in the number of, of uh, prescriptions they can write. And so this doesn't, it's, it's not outside of normal medical practice to cover for your providers. There is some concern that that, uh, that allows for some manipulation in the program. And so I think that 
you know, making those, you know, even if you have to make those visits face-to-face and not do them telemedicine, fine. Keep those providers here. The important thing is really continuing care for those patients and, you know, getting them the help they need so that they don't have to go doctor shop when a provider leaves town for a while, gets sick on maternity leave, or otherwise is is kind of unavailable. Continuity of care is a big issue in the cannabis program. And um, and I think that it, it's, you know, not only cost is an issue, but uh, I think that if you're forcing patients to shop around because of patient caps, then that's, you know, of course, patient caps are there so that you don't have uh, cannabis card mills. And the bad side of patient caps is you end up with this situation where patients have to doctor shop uh, if a provider isn't available to renew that card. So we should keep those patients within the same medical practice. Now that has been, whew, okay, Senate Bill 195, Senate Bill 190. Uh, just, you know, going through them. I don't know whether or not you're going to love this episode. I think there's going to be, hopefully there's some people out there who really appreciate this. And I, I certainly love to learn about it and stay informed. And really, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to help you stay informed about what's happening in your medical cannabis program here in Utah. I'm happy uh, to do it. I'm I'm happy to be the one who uh, tries to figure all this out for us and deliver the information. Uh, Utah in the Weeds podcast. We really are. We've we've got a complicated program, but it seems to work in a lot of ways, and we all want to make it better. If you want something changed in the law, of course, now probably isn't the best time to do that. These things are already in motion, but in the summer and in the fall, that's when to when to really get involved and and help the senators and the legislators uh, understand what's going on. So we'll be doing more research and and really trying to get the, the public and the patients involved more and more as we go and as this program develops. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Utah in the Weeds on any podcast platform that you have access to. I uh, My name again is Tim Pickett. I I love medical cannabis as a specialty. I've really enjoyed uh, this whole uh, journey with you and uh, learning about it and helping people feel better. Um, it's just been it's been very very rewarding. So stay safe out there, everybody. <laughs>